Welcome everybody. Happy Sunday. Uh, good morning from my home to yours uh, as we are getting to worship together again here at uh, Palmerado Christian Church Online. If we've not met yet, my name is JP. I'm the senior pastor here and uh, I'm just so thankful that you would spend your time with us this morning. And for those of you that call Palmerado Christian Church your home, it's just so good to see uh, and to know you guys are joining us uh, each and every morning. So thank you so much. Um, today, uh, we're going to start a brand new series uh, called The Third Option, which is uh, going to be based on Pastor Miles McPherson's book, um, The Third Option. If you have not read this, um, I would strongly encourage you to do so. Um, I read it, um, and it was um, encouraging and eye-opening and challenging all at the same time. Uh, so I'd encourage you to read that as we go through the series over the next few weeks. Um, it would help to kind of bolster and to strengthen uh, some of the conversation. And a lot of the notes that we go through today will be based on um, one of Pastor Miles' sermons as well. So um, I'm going to ask, uh, as we enter into discussing uh, the third option, hope for a racially divided nation, um, I know that this uh, is a difficult topic. Um, I know it's a, it's a hard one for many of us. Uh, I know that many of you um, have joined us this past week for the Faith and Prejudice event on Facebook and uh, been able to hear from people, learn, um, grow, be challenged, encouraged, and everywhere in between. Uh, so this conversation is very timely um, for us as a church, but obviously even more so for us as a nation. And so as we enter into this time, um, I know that through this next few weeks that there are going to be times that we might say some things that are really tough, that um, might hurt. And, and I just encourage, I ask you to um, just to, to keep listening, uh, to ask God to, to speak in and through me and to ask God to speak to you, um, that we could learn what it is that he wants us to learn, that he would speak, that he would increase and that I would decrease as we share this message um, over the next few weeks. So with that said, will you join me in a word of prayer as we get started? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. God, I thank you for each and every person who is hearing my voice right now. I pray they know how much you love them. I pray that they would know that they are created in your image. God, I pray that we would um, learn what it is to have the hope uh, for um, peace in the midst of racial division and what that looks like. So God, I pray that as we start this series, is that as I start the sermon, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. Lord, we know that there'll be times it's tough. There'll be times where we're encouraged, discouraged, challenged, frustrated, confused, um, angry. But God, we know that you are big enough to handle all those emotions and that you can work in and through us so that we could become more and more like Jesus each and every day. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Acts chapter 10 today um, as we are starting this series. Um, in Acts chapter 10, you can go ahead and turn there if you like. Um, but as you do, uh, the topic of this sermon, or excuse me, the, the title for this sermon is called Seeing Red. Um, and the reason it's called this is because uh, when we start talking about issues of race, that when you think about someone who's seeing red, it, it's this idea of there's this just great anger and strong emotion, passionate emotion. You look at uh, the psychology of colors and red is, has to do with passion and danger and all these things. And so seeing red and this idea of how this is such a difficult, heavy um, topic for many of us. And for some of us, it's um, we come at it from a perspective of 
having been um, either discriminated against or have experienced difficulties because of race. Some of us come because we want to learn, but we're angry that other people are, have been treated poorly. Some of us come and we see red because we don't understand what the big deal is, or not even the big deal, that's not the right word, but we don't understand the gravity of what's going on in our country, and what has gone on in our country, specifically when it comes to race. And so there's a lot of, um, a lot of strong emotions. So we're seeing red. And again, we'll be in Acts chapter 10. But before we um, actually dive into the passage, um, you know, a little bit about me, if we've not met yet or, or um, what have you. Um, my um, dad is from Guam. Guam is um, one of the uh, U.S. territories. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. But um, so I'm a, from Tr the Chamorro uh, or the indigenous people um, from Guam. And so my dad was from Guam um, and he moved out here when he was very young um, because uh, my grandpa was in the U.S. military. And so he um, brought the family over from uh, Guam and then has been to kind of San Diego and then Washington and bounced back and forth before settling in San Diego. And so um, we come to that where I'm, I'm half Chamorro and then I'm half, my mom is um, European, so um, Welsh and German and French and um, English and so just a mix there. And so um, you'll notice here, Steph, or sorry, excuse me, Shaylin uh, and Elise made, drew a um, family picture of us. And I wanna see if you can tell uh, the difference between us when you look at this picture. So uh, clearly the thing that you notice first and foremost, if you can see that, um, is the fact that they made me incredibly skinny, which I am very pleased with because I'm on my weight loss journey and those are goals, no. Um, but you see that you know we're all holding hands and stuff, but when they, when they colored uh, the different skin tones, like I'm, I'm definitely darker. When I look at our family, I don't look at myself as so many shades darker, but that's one of those things where just the acknowledgement of our family is a family of uh, interracial marriage. Um, I'm someone who is mixed race, um, who's a Hapa, so it's like half Pacific Islander and half white. And it's something that has impacted my life um, and it's impacted uh, the life of our family. And so as we enter into this topic of race, I know some of you are, you know, might be um, just kind of sick of hearing all about it. Um, there's, it's all over the place and there's protests and what's the problem? Why are so people so many angry and what, what's going on? I, again, I'm just asking that you would hear from my heart as someone who's experienced just dif different aspects of race um, and never, to, I've not had anything to the degree uh, to what African-Americans have experienced. So I'm not trying to say, oh, I get it too, but I can share just a glimpse of our story as a family and that, is just like a drop in the bucket, a drop in the ocean as to what other people have experienced in our country. But I wanna just start off that I'm coming from a place of experiencing some of this and I'll share in a few moments what that looks like. And so what happens in our world is that whenever there's division, right? Whether it's racial division, whether it's economic division, whether it's political division, whether it's division as to something as small as whether someone likes Coke or Pepsi more. I mean, whatever it is, whatever happens is we, whenever there's division, we, the world gives us two options, us or them. And God shows us the third option, which is to honor everyone because of him. The world gives us two options, us or them. And God shows us the third option, which is to honor everyone because of him. So let's dive into this idea of us versus them. Before we get to Acts 10, I'm going to give a little bit of background, a little bit of um, uh, 
dynamics of different perspectives of racism, what racism is, what it looks like, the different types of it, and then also how even though we may aren't racist, we may not be racist, but we can still be racially insensitive, and that's something that we need to be cautious of. And so let's take a few moments to, to dive into these things as we start off with the two options the world gives, us or them. So in the us or them, there's things that they talk about your different in-group or your out-group. And so this is something that it's, it determines the way in which we sort people into groups that are either like me or not like me. So this can go from a bunch of different places. So as a man, um, men would be an in-group for me and women would be an out-group to me. All my men, can I say amen? Women are an out-group. We don't understand them all the time, right? So in-group could be men, out-group can be women. As someone who is a pastor, in-group might be other pastors for me. Out-group might be people who um, are doctors or engineers or you know any of these other things that are really smart that I'm unable to do. Um, but they might be an out-group. I don't understand all the things that uh, doctors or engineers or other professionals do. That there might be an in-group for some who are moms who stay home and, and, work and stay home and lead the home, um, excuse me, make the home just a wonderful place to be. An out-group might be someone who's working outside of the home. Doesn't make them right or wrong. But the point is, it's not right for me to pastor and wrong for someone to be a doctor. It's just, it's an in-group. It's how I sort myself and I think, and I'm like, okay, this person's a pastor, they can understand. Or this person um, homeschools, I can understand. Or this person does, it, you know, so it's just this idea of how do we sort people based on our in-group and our out-group. The in-group says these people are like me. Outgroup says these people are not like me. So this can even happen in subgroups, right? So uh, I shared last week with uh, talking about baseball and sports that I love sports, right? So there might be people who love sports and then there's different, that might be an in-group. But then within that, there are people who love baseball, there's basketball, football, soccer, hockey, um, NASCAR, golf. I mean, it, it divides up into several different ones, right? And then, so let's say I love baseball, right? And then I love the San Francisco Giants. So then there might be other people of baseball who are my in-group, but then once you say you're a Giants fan, they become your out-group again, right? So I'm giving a silly example to picture or to paint the picture of how much these in-groups and out-groups can really impact how we view one another. Because whether we know it or not, when we meet people, we often will start, start to categorize them into, oh, is this person like me or is this person not like me? One of the biggest ones that many of us experience, again, we talk about how there's politics, and so if you're a Republican and that's your in-group, then Democrats are your out-group. If you're a Democrat, that's your in-group, and Republicans are your out-group. Um, if you are, and then for many of us, we're Christians, and so Christians are our in-group. That's our body of Christ, our family. And then people who have different faiths or no faith are part of the out-group. So how do we, as Christians, it's important for us to learn what it looks like for us to acknowledge the in-group and then intentionally get to know people on the out-group. Because by definition, people on the out-group are people that are not like us, so we don't know them. And do you know what happens when there's groups of people that we don't know but we still form opinions on? You know what that's called? It's called stereotypes. And if we're not careful, it's called discrimination. And so I want to paint that picture. Let me give um, a list of what happens when we have an in-group. Here's some biases that we have. You may be able to read these on the screen. I will read them for you um, just to kind of get an idea. So an in-group bias. Oh, excuse me. I jumped ahead. Um, let's before we, oh no, let's, let's go to in-group bias. We'll get back to all that stuff. In-group bias. This explains that I am more comfortable with those, quote, 
like me. I am more inclined to spend time socially with those like me. Number three, I am patient with those, more patient with those like me. Number four, I give the benefit of the doubt quicker to those like me. Number five, I express more grace when mistakes are made by those like me. Number six, it is easier to communicate with those like me. Number seven, I assume I will get along easier with those like me. Number eight, I'm more willing to go out of my way to help those like me. And number nine, I possess more positive assumptions about those like me. Those are what we say for people in our in group. So think about any of the options we just gave, whether it's men for me, whether it's men, whether it's pastors, um, whether it's someone who likes sports. I'm like, oh, I could get along with someone who's, you know, like sports. I'm more patient with them or whatever it is. Um, unless if they're Dodgers fans. Sorry, guys, not as, not as patient. Um, but, you know, just looking at the in-group bias. Um, but then the opposite is true. If the in-group is, should we show bias to our in-group, the opposite is true for our out-group. So let's look at some of those lists here. It says, instead, I am less comfortable with those. Um, I'm less comfortable with those not like me. I am less inclined to spend time socially with those not like me. Number three, I am less patient with those not like me. Number four, I give the benefit of the doubt less to those not like me. Five, I express less grace when mistakes are made by those not like me. Six, it is more difficult to communicate with those not like me. Seven, I don't assume I will get along easier with those not like me. Number eight, I'm less willing to go out of my way to help those not like me. And number nine, I possess less positive assumptions about those not like me. And so, we're painting the picture here, we're framing the problem, we're getting an idea as to how we just naturally have in-groups and out-groups. And having an in-group and an out-group is not discriminatory, it is not wrong. The, it's natural, we do this. The problem is, is when we only base our opinions about other people on our out-group based on these stereotypes and then we demean them or we dehumanize them or we are discouraging and don't care to get to know them because they just become those people and, and we become us. It's the us versus them. Now let me go back a few uh, slides here because I wanted to approach um, the three different types of racism. I put my notes out of order, forgive me, but um, the three different types of racism, and this is how this kind of lands with my family. So let me explain a little bit these here. So the first one is institutional racism. Now, um, I've been reading a lot of books recently. I finished the third option. I read another book uh, called So You Want to Talk About Race. And so, um, you know, admittedly and, and um, discouragingly, I admit that I didn't know or I didn't see all the different ways in which our, our country, in which the society can have institutional racism. And for those of you who are automatically bristling and saying, I don't see it, I don't think it's real, please just, just sit with me and, and, and stay with me now. Um, you can always look up more facts about this. Um, you can look up, uh, Mary Bramlett posted on my um, Facebook page, um, a video by Phil Vischer, or she, she tagged me in it. If you type in Phil Vischer, V-I-S-H-C-E-R, V-I-S-C-H-E-R, excuse me, um, and talk about race. Uh, he has an 18 minute video that talks a lot about this. But the institutional racism, let's just give a, a brief summary um, of how it specifically goes towards this with um, the history of African-Americans here in America. So the first part of it, or one of the parts, is the fact that, you know, when they were able to be freed from slaves, that after that they then created, or there were then laws that said you had to have a job. And so when black people weren't able to get jobs, they were then thrown into jails and then forced to work back on plantations. They just gotten out of plantations and then they went back into them. Then you jump years later, I'm just taking different parts of it, 
Years later, you start to see how there were times when after World War II, there was the GI Bill, which allowed and gave a lot of money for American GIs who had served in World War II and come back home. It gave them money in order to be able to buy homes and to be able to um, create generational wealth by owning property. And the percentage of those, um, the, the GI Bill funds that went to African-American soldiers, war veterans who were black, was minuscule in comparison to those who were white. Now, what does that have to do with it? Well then, by not being able to have wealth and not to be able to have the same amount of wealth um, that's generational, that owns property, you pass all that down to the next generation, then um, there all of a sudden was less wealth. That right now, um, or recently, there's the idea that the um, African-American household makes one-tenth um, of the amount of money, or, or it's like this, this crazy number that, and that because of the, not just the salary, but the wealth that they're, they'd have less because they didn't have land because of the GI Bill. Now, there's a lot and I'm, you know, I'm missing things, I'm picking you know, parts of it and there's a lot more on that video I would really encourage you to watch. It's challenging, but it paints the picture that there were different places called redlining or different districts. Redlining was something by realtors um, decades ago that there were certain, um, certain maps, certain districts, certain neighborhoods that they put a red line around that black people were not allowed to buy into, that those were different neighborhoods that they were not allowed to purchase. Um, and then it goes so far that decades ago, decades ago, um, that you would lose, you could potentially lose your realtor's license by selling um, a home to someone who's African-American in the quote, wrong neighborhood, or in this case, in a white neighborhood. So. There's an institutional idea. For me personally, what I was learning in the past couple of years is that as a Guamanian, as a Chamorro, that Guam is one of the American territories. Others are American Samoa, um, Puerto Rico, the Northern Mariana Islands, um, Guam. And these islands, um, these island nations are, or island territories, excuse me, are American citizens, except for American Samoa. They're only nationals, which I don't understand. But because in 1901, there was um, someone who wrote a law that said that American citizenship should not count towards these island territories. And the reason why is because, quote, these island territories were filled with, quote, alien races who, quote, could not understand Anglo-Saxon principles. In other words, if I was born, I was born in California. If I, the exact same person, was born thousands of miles west of here in Guam, still, still Hapa, still half Chamorro, half white, if I was born there, I would not be able to vote because, quote, I'd be an alien race that could not understand Anglo-Saxon principles or the way that, that the white culture works. That's crazy to me. And it's crazy because Guam has given a, a, over a quarter of its land to the military, the U.S. military, there's a base there. Um, almost an eighth of its people, adult Guamanians, have uh, been uh, veterans. That there's a higher voter turnout, even though their votes don't count, there's a higher voter turnout, 67% turnout to vote in Guam, as opposed to 61.7% of people turn out to vote here in, in um, the American states. So purely just because of different institutional things, Guam and these other island territories cannot vote for um, what's important to them, cannot vote for their president, cannot vote uh, for things about the country that can still tell them when to go to war and can still tell them what needs to be done. So that's just a small example of institutional racism and there's many more, um, but we're just gonna, we're gonna stop there. 
Um, the next one is internalized racism. This is the one when people groups have been discriminated against either do two things. One, they start discriminating against other people um, like them. And so in order to kind of fit in with the predominant culture, they discriminate against the culture around them. Or two, they start to deny that they are part of a discriminated against culture. And this one's hard for me. I've been processing this one a lot over the past few weeks because um, I wouldn't say that I've um, internalized any, any negative racism thing against Guam. I, I don't say that at all, but it reminded me of a story that, um, of something that happened when I was younger. I, I've shared this with uh, before, so I'll share it again because why not? Uh, this is a picture of me when um, I tried to bleach my hair, uh, junior year of high school. Um, and uh, as you can see, um, I tried to bleach my black, dark black hair and it turned like Cheeto orange. Uh, you can see that I'm sitting on the hood of a 1989 Honda Accord, which is very classy. Um, and you can see that I'm you know, trying to be really cool and it never worked, still doesn't work for me. But um, just this idea of I wore that and I did that. And then I remember I had a conversation shortly after that with my dad. And I remember I was talking about how, oh, I, you know, I, want, I had the, the bleached hair and I don't know how it came up, but I, I just, I love blue eyes. It's one of the things that I've noticed about Steph right away is her beautiful blue eyes. Um, and I think I made a comment of like, oh, I, you know, I wonder if I could get like blue contacts so I can have blue eyes. And I just remember, I don't remember how my dad said it, but I do remember he just expressed um, just sadness and hurt that his Guamanian son um, wanted to be blonde and blue eyed. Um, and I, didn't, I wasn't um, intentionally trying to do that. I wasn't intentionally trying to discriminate or look down upon anyone um, or, or my own race. However, the reality was that there was something inside of me that looked around and saw the world and saw how I wanted to look. And for a season, I wanted to look not like who I was. So it, it may not be fully internalized racism, but it was something that I was denying who I was, and I still learn and recognize how much I need and want to learn about my Chamorro culture um, and about my background. And so, um, again, that's just one example of that. And then the third one is personally mediated. This is the one that we naturally think of when we think about racism. Personally mediated is when one person uh, expressly is racist towards another person intentionally, um, and, and there's that sort of thing. So. The example for this for my family, as I've shared with some of you before, was the fact that because um, my, my mom grew up, um, and my mom's white, and um, grew up in a family that um, wanted her to marry someone who was white. And because my dad uh, was not white, he was, again, Guamanian, Chamorro, from an island nation or an island territory of the U.S., um, when they got married, uh, my mom's side of the family cut off my mom and till their dying day, never spoke a word to me. Never tried to reach out to me or my brother. Um, didn't want anything to do with us because we weren't fully white. And I see the blessing that my girls have um, to have great, to have wonderful grandparents. Um, and, you know, there's a part of me that mourns uh, that I didn't have my biological grandparents because of race because there was a personally mediated aspect of racism that where my grandparents on my mom's side cut off my mom and my dad because of my dad's race. 
and that hurts. It still hurts. And it's hard to navigate and it's hard to process. So I know that there are people that talk about how racism doesn't exist. There's no institutional racism. There's no internalized racism. And personally mediated racism is the kind of racism where, you know, people don't always mean it. Or when they do, those are the bad people. But it's important for us to realize that we can be racially insensitive even when we're not racist. That we may not have this personal mediated hatred towards other races, but we can still say things and do things that can be harmful and racially insensitive. And we'll hit on those in a few moments. But in order to turn our corner, we, we want to start talking about, so what is the, um, the third option? What does it look like for us? And so let's look at Acts chapter 10. By way of introduction, we took some time to introduce this topic, but I'm going to start reading from Acts chapter 10. Not the whole thing, um, but let's give the background. Acts chapter 10, Peter is um, someone who was obviously one of Jesus' closest friends, um, I just said closest, I just added syllables, I don't know, whatever. Um, he was one of Peter's, uh, you know, innermost friends. And he uh, had a moment where, well, sorry, Acts 10, chapter, uh, verse 1, there's a man named Cornelius who was a God-fearing Gentile who loved God and did some incredible things. It was well known in the community. And he had a vision, to, or he was told to go and uh, invite Peter to speak at Cornelius's at his own home. Now, at the same time, Peter is then experiencing a vision. I'm going to read this from chapter 9, or excuse me, verse 10, chapter 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey, they being the people sent by Cornelius to get Peter, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the, on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Well, then let's jump up as at that moment is when the Cornelius's um, people who were come to bring Peter over to Cornelius's house, they arrive and Peter eventually ends up going with them and starts walking to them to Cornelius's house. Because we see this idea that the Jewish people were the us in their mind. All the Gentiles were the them. They were the other. They were the out group. Jews were the in group. They were the out group. And so there started to be this line, it's either us or them. And we see that Peter understands that God was not telling him just about what food he can eat or not eat, that he was talking about something much deeper than that. And we pick the story up um, starting in uh, verse 27. He arrives there and then as, sorry, verse 25, as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up. He said, I'm only a man myself. Verse 27, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? See, Peter 
was establishing and sharing, hey, listen, I'm, as a Jewish person, you as Gentiles, you are my outgroup. I would naturally be discriminatory towards the outgroup. I have less in common with an outgroup. I shouldn't visit an outgroup person. I shouldn't walk and meet them. I shouldn't get to know them. You are the other, you are the them. I am part of the Jewish culture and I am the we, I am the us. And so there's this line, but he says, normally I wouldn't have walked into this doorway. I wouldn't have darkened this door in order to meet with Gentiles. But what does he say in verse 28? But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. And here's how you realize that Peter knew that God wasn't just talking about food. Because in verse 15, the, ver the voice spoke to Peter saying, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Anything a food, an item, a dish, things like that, that were clean or unclean. But Peter understood that God wasn't just talking about food. He was talking about people. He was saying that God has told me not to call anyone impure or unclean. That the outgroup is no longer part of the outgroup when God is the one who created us. You know why? Because the truth of the matter is, is when it comes to specifically race, that you know Jews were a race and the Gentiles were everything non-Jewish. When it comes to a race, we are all just 50 shades of different brown. That the idea is, is that if we have a lighter skin tone, we have more melanin, right? And so that's, the, that's what makes our skin lighter. But, and someone who has darker skin just doesn't have as much of it. And so yet, when we are looking at someone who has a different skin tone than us, a different race than us, we are looking at someone who is 99.5% biologically the exact same. And so when we talk about this, it's the idea of uh, when I was getting coffee for a friend, um, a couple of friends at my old church, and uh, I was getting there and I was trying, how do you want your cream? And one of them said, you know, I want my cream to look like a white guy with a nice tan. And so it's amazing because in my mind, I could picture what that would look like, right? So I put the appropriate amount of cream in and said, okay, here's your coffee. And it's the same idea where like that, that, that creamer is like the idea of the melanin, that God just puts a little bit more creamer, a little bit more melanin inside of us and makes a different skin tone, right? So when we realize that there's only one race and that's the human race, in general, it allows us to extend our in-group and to get rid of out-groups. Now, that's not to devalidate other races or cultures. It's not to say that one, um, you know, everyone should just, it's just one race, so it doesn't matter if you're um, an African race or if you're an Asian race or Hispanic race, that there's no such thing as race. That is not true. And we'll hit on that in a couple moments as well, that we need to acknowledge that there are differences, but differences don't have to equal divisions. Differences can amplify beauty. Differences can allow us to see how incredible God's creation is. In the same way, there's not just one flower. There's tons of different types of flowers. There's not just one color. There's not just one type of fish. There's not just one type of bird. I mean, God's creativity is infinite. And so we recognize that God's creativity in forming humans is infinite and they're all beautiful and all of them are valuable. All of them need to be honored, which is what how we define the third option. So we look here and we see that Joshua 5 gives us a picture of this third option dynamic. When in Joshua 5 we see that um, God we see that 
there's a story when Joshua's walking, he's about to go to Jericho, and there's a man that comes, and we pick up the story here. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. The point of this is it's talking about how we try to make everything us or them. Are you on my side? Or are you on the other side? Are you going to say, you know, are you with me? Are you my in-group? Are you us? Or are you the out-group? Are you them? But the Lord, the, the angel of the Lord says, neither. It reminds me of like when we say to the girls, all right, girls, you can have um, either macaroni and cheese or quesadillas for dinner. And they say, no, I want ice cream. It's like, no, that wasn't one of the options. It's us or them. And they're trying to find that third option that's much sweeter than the ones that we're giving, right? See, God is saying that there's a third option. How do we define that third option? We hit on this a few weeks ago, but I'm going to reiterate it. That according to Matt's book, God's third option invites us to honor that which we have in common, which is the presence of his image in every person we meet. When we honor the presence of his image in others, we acknowledge their priceless value as precious and beloved of God. And no matter how someone looks on the outside, they were formed in their mother's womb by a creator God, that Jesus died for them to have the opportunity for a right relationship with him, and that the Holy Spirit may want to use you to reach them. We've never laid eyes on someone who is not loved by God. And so instead of looking at everyone as our out group and in group and dividing those lines, what does it look like for us to embrace the third option? What are some tangible steps, some yes, but how moments that allow us to look and to evaluate ourselves, but also evaluate how it is that we interact with other people? So again, many of these notes come from Pastor Miles' sermon. Um, and so we're going to hit on those in just a moment. The first one is to acknowledge your blind spots. Acknowledge your blind spots. When I um, have shared before, um, and I had a bad one yesterday, I had a migraine or a bad headache. And um, what happens is, is that when I share with people that, that I have bad migraines or headaches, you know, what people often do would say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, like I've heard those are really painful. Or, so how does it happen? Like, what does it look like? Do you get them? You know, what, what starts them? And then I'll say, you know, maybe it's how I slept. Maybe it's the weather. Maybe it's um, different foods. Like there's different ideas. And, but, they, it, but they sympathize, right? They say, oh my gosh, that pain must be really bad. I'm so sorry. I've never had a migraine, but I'm sorry that you do. And I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize. I, I empathize with your pain. And what ends up happening is, is that they show empathy. But yet for some reason, Someone who doesn't understand what migraines can look like can show me empathy when I talk about having migraines. And yet someone who has no idea what it's like to experience um, racism cannot empathize with the pain of those who do. I shouldn't say cannot, but many have a wall there. Many block it out and say, well, I just I don't think that there is racism in this country or it's not institutional. It's one on one racism. And since I'm not a racist, I'm not part of the problem. I'm not here to blame anybody, because if I blame anybody, I have to blame myself, too. So I'm not here to blame. I'm here to acknowledge that there are blind spots. There are things that we don't know that we don't know in the same way that if I want to 
merge into a lane. If I don't look at my blind spot, I can crash. If we don't acknowledge the blind spots we have when it comes to race, we may crash and harm ourselves or even more so harm those who are on the outgroup, who are different than us and whom we need to show love to. And so what, I, what doesn't happen when I talk about migraines is someone who says, well, your pain isn't real. Clearly, I've never had migraines, therefore there's no way you can have migraines. They don't, that's not what happens. They show empathy. So for us, let's acknowledge that if we haven't experienced a pain from racial issues, does not mean that racial issues are non-existent. It just means we haven't experienced the pain of them. So let's empathize and express care for those who have, rather than digging in our heels and saying that it's impossible that people have. So acknowledge our blind spots. It's the same idea if someone were to say, um, you, let's say you had a great experience at high school. That high school was incredible for you. You loved it. Um, you were really involved, had a lot of friends, um, you know, just felt like you achieved things. It was really good. And you look back on high school fondly. Let's say you go to a 10-year reunion and you catch up with someone and you talk about how great was high school. And that person who you've seen in class years ago, but they said high school was the worst experience in my life. Well, how is that possible? I had a great experience in high school. I got really connected. I felt things went well for me. How can you have had a bad experience? And they could say, well, I was bullied. And just because you didn't see it doesn't mean it didn't happen. That I wasn't given the same opportunities. That I was hurting at home and no one saw my pain. Just because we don't see it or experience the pain of people because of race does not mean that those, that pain is non-existent. We cannot invalidate that pain that everyone from our outgroup is someone by definition that we don't know very well. So the best way to do that isn't to keep our outgroup big, it's to expand our in-group to include more, to bring people in who look different and to ask them, do I do anything that's racially insensitive even though I know in my heart, I don't have a racist bone in my body, right? But do I say things that could be insensitive? Do I, do I make jokes that we all just think, oh, it's just funny, they're racist jokes, but I don't, I'm not racist, I just think it's a funny joke. But do those jokes actually harm you? Do, do they come off as insensitive? I, I don't want to do that. I acknowledge I'm blind in these areas. Can you help me and have someone speak into you that way? Another thing that we could do is to rename those people as your neighbor. Rename the outgroup as, oh, that's just those people. They're different than us. They, they have different ways of doing things. Rename those as neighbor. Because what does Matthew 10 talk about? Or excuse me, Matthew 22, I apologize. Verse 36 through 39 says to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And then we see the story in Luke 10. That's where I got the 10 from. In Luke 10, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and you know, the man comes up and questions like, what, what should I do to inherit life? And Jesus says, you know, what do you think it is? Or what do you think is right? Love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you, you did well. Yes, that's right. But then the next question that the man asks is, in order to justify himself, as Luke 10 says. In order to justify himself, he says, well, who is my neighbor? Right, because we wanna put a limit around the love that we share and the compassion we show. We wanna say, okay, I'll do that, Lord. I'll show love to people, but only within the parameters and the perimeters that I feel comfortable in. Only with people who are like me. Only with people who are in my in-group. That we are so much more loving to people who 
are like us and we are less likely to show that same love to people who are not like us. And it's natural, but it needs to stop so that we can experience or exhibit rather the third option. To instead of saying, hey, those are those people, we say, whoever the outgroup is, they are my neighbor and I ought to love my neighbor as myself. Regardless of how they look, what country they're from, what music they listen to, what food they eat, no matter what they vote like, no matter what they do, no matter what their jobs or lack thereof look like, I need to love them as my neighbor, just as I would love myself. And that is part and parcel, that it stems from loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength first. We need to rename those people as your neighbor. We also need to acknowledge your neighbor's color. That um, I want to show you a picture um, that uh, it's a black and white picture here. Um, and this is a Thomas Kincaid painting. And you could look at it, you could look at a black and white. And when we say we don't see color, it's like we're saying, oh, we don't acknowledge that there's difference between us. And, and our heart, when we say I don't see color, is meant to be, well, I don't see color in the point that it, it causes me to show love to anyone less because of their color. We, we try to say, oh, I just see everybody the same. And yet, if we were to say we want to just see everybody the same, it's like only looking at a black and white photo because it's almost a, a, not even a valid picture of what that person's experiences are like, what their pain is like, and it doesn't show the creativity of how God has created us differently in order for us to celebrate that difference and those differences around us. That part of what makes a garden beautiful is different flowers. Part of what makes uh, people beautiful is that there's different ways that we all look and what we eat and how we speak and what that means. That part of what makes food beautiful is that it's not all just one flavor. And part of what makes paintings beautiful is that it's not all one color. In fact, we need to acknowledge color so that we can truly enjoy the way that the creator intended for this to be. We need to be able to look at it in its full color. In order for us to enjoy how God has created people to be, we need to acknowledge other people's color and to ask questions and to learn from them to be able to say, listen, I'm not trying to deval or unvalidate your pain by saying, oh, I don't see color. So we need to start to remove I don't see color from our, from our vocabulary. The reason I know this is true is that when I meet people, I just met someone earlier this week on Monday in person, and you know, we start talking, and ine not inevitably, but oftentimes it gets to a point where someone just says, so like, what nationality are you? You know, what, what are you? What are you from? Sometimes when they ask, what are you, depending on what time of day is, I might just say tired or hungry. No, I'm just kidding. But this idea of people ask, what am I? How can we say we don't see color? When there are people who look at me and say, what are you? I can tell you look different. And, you know, I have people who thought, oh, I'm just white. You know, someone's like, oh, I just, I've just always thought you were white. I didn't know that there was anything else in you. And the truth is, is that there, there is a difference, right? And we can acknowledge that and learn and grow and try to get to know one another better. And so acknowledging one another's color isn't something that's bad. It's something that allows us to acknowledge both the beauty of their lives and also to hear and to be able to empathize with the pain that comes with that as well. And both honoring the beauty and honoring and listening to their pain are both ways that we embody the third option to honor one another because of what we have in common, which is that we are precious and beloved by God. Another thing that we do is we show our in-group love to our out-group. 
Show in-group love to your out-group. So in the same way that you might be more willing to spend time socially with people in your in-group, spend time socially with people in your out-group. In the same way that you feel like you don't have as much in common with your out-group because they're not like you, find commonalities. When I'm walking around, if I see someone, regardless of race, if I see someone who's wearing like a Giants hat or a 49ers hat or a Warriors hat or something, I say, hey, I like your hat. Why? Because we could find common ground and that means that we are, I can bring someone into the in-group of we like the same sports team and can be friendly to one another rather than looking at someone's race and saying, well, they're different. I don't even need to talk to them. So show in-group love to your out-group. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Invite someone from your out-group into your home for dinner. And what might be even more challenging, but just as honoring, if not more honoring, is to, when they invite you back, go into their home for, the, for dinner. So it's not just like, you come here where I feel comfortable, it's let me go where you are. Peter walked to the door of a home of people he would not have normally gone to so that he could learn and so he could share the message of the gospel. And we see how in Acts 10, around verse 44 or so, that the Gentiles, they started to prophesy through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the people who were with Peter were amazed and said, now we know, now we know. Um, where is it? The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. The third option opens the door for people to come to know Jesus, to show in-group love, to share Jesus with people who don't look like us and not out of only when you go on a mission trip. Yes, do those things, but in across the, across the street, not just across the world. Across your classroom, not just across the world. Across the workplace, not just across the world. Finding ways to show in-group love to people who are in your out-group. Because one of the things that paints God's powerful, beautiful picture of his kingdom is when people who are different are united under the same banner of love. Which is why Revelation 7, when every tribe and every nation and every tongue will be crying out to God and worshiping, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That the things that would normally create in-group, out-group, us versus them options here on earth, through the third option of honoring one another, allows us to worship God together and to come into right relationship with Him. Then lastly, give your heart to those who are not like you. Give your heart to those who are not like you. Uh, there's a story that we're going to watch for a couple moments here um, on your screen. And uh, it's a story about um, uh, a black man, uh, Rod Carew, uh, who's a famous baseball player, um, and the impact that he had on uh, a young white boy, a young white man who's about 11 years old, 12 years old, um, and the impact that that had both on the young man's life and on the old man's life eventually. So will you take a few moments uh, to turn your attention to the screen, or you're already watching the screen, I guess, but uh, take a moment to watch this, and in mind, as you're watching it, have the idea of giving your heart to those not like you, and watch this video together. As many celebrate Easter this weekend, we're reminded of its universal message of love, sacrifice, and rebirth. All elements of Steve Hartman's story tonight on the road. When pro football player Conrad Ruland was hospitalized with a brain aneurysm last November, he took it as a sign. 
He texted his mom from the hospital. God had something big in store for me. I can't wait to see where his will takes me. But a few hours later, the aneurysm ruptured. I couldn't leave him. His parents, Mary and Ralph, raced to his side. I had my right ear on his chest and talked to him and laid that all day and listened to his heartbeat all day long. But her son was brain dead at 29. If this was God's plan, it sure felt like an awful one. And then when we left, I said, whoever gets his heart better deserve it. I had a massive heart attack. The one paramedic, he had the paddles in his hand. Come on, we're losing him, we're losing him. You heard that? Yeah, and then I was gone. This is Rod Carew. Even if you're barely a baseball fan, you know the name. These are all for winning the batting titles. Long before that massive heart attack landed him on the transplant list, this Hall of Famer played for the Minnesota Twins and California Angels. Along the way, he earned a reputation for being great with kids, including one wide-eyed boy named Conrad Ruland. He gets in the car, big eyes and everything. He's about 11, maybe 12, and he's saying, Mom, Mommy, I met Rod Carew today. You know, he's a pro athlete. I want to be a pro athlete. And he, the rest of the day, that's all he talked about was meeting Rod Carew. They only met that once, but these two professional athletes are now inseparable because a few months before he died, Conrad checked the organ donor box on his driver's license application. Welcome. And by sheer coincidence, the man who received Welcome. his heart was none other than Rod Carew. It's good to see you. You're a part of our family now. Yes, forever. Yes. The two families got together recently at the Rulins house in Orange County, California. I'm gonna ask mom to listen to his heart and tell me how beautiful it sounds. That was really cathartic for me to, to be able to hear it again. Every heartbeat is unique. There it is. And she said this one was unquestionably Conrad. I've got it memorized. The two families are now planning to team up to use Rod and Conrad's celebrity to promote the American Heart Association and to encourage many more people to become organ donors. Whatever, if we can save a life. And that means including Conrad now. You know, he's, wherever I go, he's going to be there. When Conrad sent his mom that text, saying he felt like God still had a plan for him, he obviously thought he would go on living. And now we know. He will. Steve Hartman, on the road, in Orange County, California. Isn't that just a powerful story? And it's incredible when there's the moment when the mom, um, who had been so used to hearing uh, Conrad's um, heart beating by laying on his chest, and then she gets the opportunity to, to listen to Rod Carew's heartbeat because it was her son's heartbeat and to be able to hear it, and she, what does she say? She says, that's his heartbeat, I have it memorized. And it's this emotional moment. And it's this idea of being able to, it didn't matter what color Conrad was or Rod Carew was, why? Because again, we're 99.5% the same, the only difference is how much cream we have in the coffee, right? So the idea is we need to see that it's about our hearts and it's about what we have in common and to honor what we have in common. And so we called this sermon Seeing Red because initially this, the topic of race can cause frustration and anger and heartache and strong emotions. Like we're seeing red and we cannot focus. But what we want to close with today is this idea that when we see red, 
It's the idea that we all have the same color heart. We all bleed the same color. And Christ Jesus bled red for all of us, regardless of our race, to come into right relationship with him. To recognize that there's far more about us that unifies us. So may we choose the third option by following those steps. And may we give our hearts to people who are not like us so that we could experience just a glimpse of how Jesus gave his life for us. Because Jesus was with God in heaven and the Holy Spirit. They were the us and we were the them, the, the ones who were the out group. And they said, no, I want to go. Jesus says he came down to earth so that we could have a right relationship with him. So he could expand his in-group to include those of us who confess that he is Lord and believe in our hearts and in so doing become saved. So God says that he will remove from us our heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh. May we see that that heart, our blood, and the blood that Jesus poured out for us is red. May that be the value and the honor that we see in one another, that Jesus died for you regardless of what you look like. Jesus died for you regardless if you're in my out group. Jesus died for you, and when the world wants to say them, Jesus and us, we want to say welcome and be part of us, those who love God, and be able to have a right relationship with him. Father, we thank you for this day, Lord, and I pray that as we are talking about difficult topics and introducing difficult things, God, I pray that you um, would just be stirring in our hearts, that you'd be encouraging us, challenging us, help us to see what you're doing and to allow you to work in us. As Psalm 139 says, Lord, see if there's any offensive way within us and lead us into the way everlasting. Search us and know us, God. Lord, I pray that as we just thought about the idea of how, you, how we want to see red, that we have the same heart, we bleed the same blood, and that Jesus, your blood, washes all of us clean, and that that red blood is what reminds us of the honor and the value that you see in every person, and therefore that we must see in every person by exhibiting the third option. So Jesus, we take the bread now that reminds us of the body that was broke, your body that was broken, and we take the cup that does remind us of your blood that flowed red, so that we could be in right relationship and so that we could see the honor and belovedness of every person we meet because you want a right relationship with them too. So we take the elements of communion now in remembrance of your sacrifice, Jesus. We thank you and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please feel free to partake of the elements as you feel led. Amen. Everyone, I want to thank you again for sticking with me through this uh, first sermon as we talk about some hard topics. I want to thank those of you who were part of the Faith and Prejudice event and learn and were able to learn and grow and be challenged. And I pray that that learning, that growing, that challenging that we'll experience over the next few weeks and just that honor that we would show one another would really pave the way for us to see how God, much God loves us and how much God loves each and every one of his people, regardless of how they look. Help us to 
Help us to be the change to embody that third option. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he turn his face towards you. May he grant you his peace because you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next Sunday morning.